0: Every large company generates large amounts of data. Data engineering is the process of storing, transforming, and leveraging that data. Data infrastructure companies provide tools and platforms for performing data engineering. The last 15 years has seen a rise in modern data management companies, built in a time of decreasing storage costs, an increased volume of data, and the prevalence of cloud computing. Modern data companies include Hadoop vendors, cloud providers, and a wide variety of individual software companies offering products such as databases, ETL tools, and open source tooling. The go-to-market strategy for a data infrastructure company requires a deep understanding of the data engineering landscape. A company must build something useful, sell it to customers, and eventually build a replicable strategy. Sean Knapp is the CEO of Ascend, a company that builds Apache Spark-based data pipelines that connect APIs, data lakes, and data warehouses together to enable data applications. Sean joins the show to talk about the process of building a data infrastructure company, as well as his lessons building Ascend. If you're planning a hackathon, check out FindCollabs Hackathons. Whether you're running an internal hackathon for your company or you're running an open hackathon so that users can try out your product, FindCollabs Hackathons are a tool for people to build projects and collaborate with each other. FindCollabs is a company I started to allow people to find collaborators for their software projects, and our new hackathon product allows you to organize your hackathon participants to make your hackathon as productive as possible. If you're thinking about organizing a hackathon, check it out at findcollabs.com. I love software architecture. Software architecture is the high-level perspective of how to build software systems. Much of Software Engineering Daily is about software architecture. And if you're interested in software architecture, there's no better place to go to discuss and learn about software architecture than the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, which is coming to New York February 23rd through 26th of 2020. If you are interested in software architecture, you can go to oReillySAcon.com/sedaily. That link is in the show notes, and you can get 20% off your ticket to the Software Architecture Conference. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is a great place to learn about the high-level perspectives and the implementation details of microservices, cloud computing, serverless, and also systems like machine learning and analytics. If you've been listening to Software Engineering Daily for a while, you know that these systems are hard to build, and they take engineering details at both the high level and at the low level. Whether you're a seasoned architect or an engineer that is just curious about software architecture, and maybe you want to become a software architect you can check out the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference at OReillySACon.com SEDaily, use the discount code SE20, and get 20% off your ticket. There are lots of reasons to go to the Software Architecture Conference. There's networking opportunities, there are plenty of talks and training opportunities, and you can get 20% off by going to O'ReillySACon.com slash SEDaily and entering discount code SE20. I've been going to O'Reilly conferences for years, and I don't see myself stopping anytime soon because they're just a great way to learn and meet people. So check it out, and thanks to O'Reilly for being a longtime sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. John Knapp, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. The conversation we're going to have is about data platforms, data warehousing, modern data systems, and every company, well, most companies, start off basically with a transactional data store. And the typical acronym for this is OLTP, Online Transaction Processing. This is typically like a Mongo database or a MySQL database. And it handles all of the basic transactions, like the user transactions, or if you're talking about Uber, it handles all the rides. You know you call a car, the car comes, you know the driver information is handled by the transaction. The ride ends. All these things are logged in transactions. But then a company reaches a point where they have so much data in that OLTP database, and then they also have other kinds of data, like telemetry and logging data and all kinds of other stuff where they start to have all these different data stores and different data systems. They need to start taking advantage of all those different sources of data. I want to understand what happens from your point of view between that point of just having an OLTP system for the startup or the company that just got started or the new project and the point where it has so much data where they need to do quote unquote big data.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so it's really interesting. And I think you describe it really well, which is, you know, most companies start with a lot of their transactional data. And this data tends to be better structured. It tends to be really clear around the size, the volume, the velocity. And as we start to get all of this telemetric data, what starts to happen is you add one or two, sometimes even three orders of magnitude. And you also start to introduce a lot more complexity. And that really pushes most companies into this big data world where we start to have to look at entirely different systems for how do we store that data? How do we process that data? And most importantly, how do we really start to refine that data and extract a value from it? It tends to be just raw. It tends to actually have more needles in those haystacks. And you really have to actually process a ton of that data to create the derived insights that are of similar or incomparable value to the actual transactional data itself. And so, Most companies usually go from this point of having their OLTP system to then really starting to have data pipelines. And it's usually tied to systems that you have data collection systems, then you have your data lake, and you're building a lot of these complex pipelines to collect, refine, and process all of this really raw telemetric data to create these incrementally derived insights around your users or the systems that you actually operate.
0: Tell me more about the data problems that the company develops as it builds all these transactional systems and builds telemetry systems and wants to do analytics over them.
1: Well, so we see a lot of problems start to be introduced when you're building Data pipelines, and when you really start to, starting to refine data, and and they come from really just a, a handful of sort of like root issues. Which is the first thing is you end up starting to have a lot more data, and you're going to have it across different systems. You're going to have some in databases, you're going to have some in data lakes, you're going to have some sitting behind other cloud services and APIs, and so keeping your entire data ecosystem connected and in sync becomes the first real big challenge. The second thing that then really becomes challenging for folks is how you actually then refine that data and ensure that it's accurate. We find a lot of people start to build pretty complex data pipelines, but you end up introducing this really interesting challenge where in a database, I actually have a database engine. It has a query optimizer well, a query planner and a query optimizer. When I actually start to, to move around larger volumes of data, I have really powerful storage engines. I have really powerful processing engines, things like Hadoop or Spark or Kafka. But what I don't have are actually pipeline engines themselves. So we find data engineers end up writing huge amounts of code to construct and design these pipelines, really to try and re-implement a lot of these heuristics and efficiencies you see with a query optimizer on a database to actually manage their data pipelines themselves.
0: Explain what you mean by a data pipeline. So a
1: data pipeline, in a really simple sense, usually ends up being some form of ETL. I'm extracting data from somewhere, oftentimes a data lake. I'm transforming it. I'm doing everything from just cleaning the data normalizing it to even doing complex transformations like aggregates, roll-ups, machine learning, et cetera. And then I'm usually loading it somewhere else. I'm putting it into a data warehouse, another database, or back into my data lake. And as part of these pipelines, I'm having to actually keep track of the work that I've done before. And that's really where a lot of the the challenges get introduced is in a database, in the simplest construct, if I keep running the same query as my data itself changes, if I run the same query over and over again, I get a new updated result. And that's where databases have become so powerful. In a data pipeline world, I'm moving data through and I'm copying replicas of data or derived data sets. And this becomes really hard from an engineering perspective, because if my underlying data changes, or if I update values, I, as an engineer, have to then really implement an intelligent system to figure out what have I calculated before, if the new data or the changed data affects those previous calculations, and where did all of that data go? And so this is one of the really both interesting and challenging aspects of data engineering is what happens when there's new data, when there's changed data, when there's late data that introduces a whole host of challenges that we just never had before in databases and data warehouses.
0: So I think what you're saying is company gets these transactional systems, they get these telemetry systems, and let's say they want to do offline data science. Maybe every night they want to aggregate the Some of the amount of money that they've made from all the rides that have taken place across Uber or something like that. And then they want to, you know, do some transformation on it, like transform it like the sum to yen and euros and for whatever reason. And then they want to write all those you know, different things to an Elasticsearch cluster. I don't know. I'm just making up an example. So that's like a three-step process. And that could arguably be a data pipeline where you've got step A, step B, and step C. And at each step, you have incremental data that gets created. And you know what, you got to write that somewhere, you got to keep it somewhere. And then maybe you want to throw it out at the end, maybe that's a fourth step. And there are existing systems for orchestrating that. And you need to have some kind of system to orchestrate that because, you know, if, if something goes wrong along the way, maybe you need to retry. So you know, other things can go wrong. Tell me what the systems are for doing that pipelining for managing those incremental steps of a data pipeline.
1: Yeah, and I think you break it up into the, the really appropriate and interesting steps, which are ultimately I'm moving data from these various stages. And that the technologies and, and the tools that we use generally factor into just a few different buckets. You know, we start with, where do I store my data? We have the systems that actually process the data. And then there's the, the tool on top, which actually orchestrates it. It's the system that's sending a lot of instructions to those underlying engines. And what's really interesting as we look at the domain itself and really where we spent a lot of time at Ascend focusing on is this orchestration layer. And when we look at how a lot of this segment and where a lot of the technology investment has has happened to date, there's a lot of imperative-based systems. We see a lot of systems that are frameworks and tools that let us write a variety of different code and structures to process data. But what we have actually taken a really big approach on is how do we build a declarative system? And we've taken this approach, as we've seen this trend happen a lot in software engineering in general, the move from imperative to declarative systems. SQL is a declarative language. We use Terraform to declare and define our infrastructure. We use Kubernetes to declare and define our container orchestration. And the reason that we believe that there's this really huge shift from imperative to declarative systems, is fundamentally based on the need to maintain and understand state. When I'm writing all of these pipelines, and when we talk about the sample pipeline, you talk about where I'm processing a bunch of data, I'm converting it from dollars to yen, and then I'm loading it into my data warehouse or I'm loading it into Elastic. One of the fundamental needs we have in those systems is to understand what have we done before, what already exists and then be able to understand what is the delta between what is there today and what needs to happen so the system itself can very quickly and efficiently generate the new work and accomplish the overall goal. And when we look at, when we did a survey of orchestration across the industry and and looked at all the various tools we had options for, it really kind of breaks into this category of uh, mostly imperative-based systems and or declarative-based systems. And the fundamental difference is As an engineer, are we writing code that essentially in an imperative model, inspect state defines all the steps to then take us from one state to another? For example, an imperative system, I would inspect what's already in Elasticsearch, inspect what's been maybe cached inside of S3, look at the jobs that have run before, do my integrity checks, analyze the upstream data, see if there was any late arriving data because a server was offline and came back online, and then figure out what that delta was to then process Or in a declarative system, you try and essentially push a lot of that down to the, usually it's a control layer or a control plane that then automates a bunch of that for you.
0: Tell me how the data platform that you're describing varies between a company that started in the pre-cloud days. So like we're at AWS reInvent right now, there's a ton of enterprises that have been around for a very long time. And they're going through this, quote, digital transformation or whatever you want to call it. And one of the things on the laundry list of that digital transformation is to build a data platform. But then you've got these other companies that are post-cloud, like Uber or Lyft, and they're starting from a little bit more of a clean slate in terms of their data platform. Tell me how the infrastructure of these two worlds differs from one another and how that impacts you as a startup that's trying to build a quote-unquote data platform that serves these types of customers
1: yeah you highlight something i think really really important which is the the data ecosystem itself and as we look out across a plethora of different companies you know if we look at the digital native companies they tend to have simpler more straightforward ecosystems they tend to store a lot of their their data inside of blob stores or a handful of warehousing or databasing technologies When we look at a lot of the more established companies and the technologies they use, we find that there's an order of magnitude more complexity. They have more data and more systems, and it's really important to actually recognize the fact that while they may want to be modernizing a lot of that tech stack and moving a lot of that to cloud, there is really an incremental migration strategy that's really important. And what that means for technology companies like Ascend is you have to have a highly flexible and highly pluggable system that works with everything else that's in the ecosystem today. And so the ability to tap into, whether it's your data sitting inside of a queue or in a lake, or your data that's actually sitting behind entirely proprietary systems with a totally custom API. You have to be able to plug into things that are talking both gRPC and SOAP. You have to be able to plug into things that may be uh, sitting behind a special VPN tunnel in their on-prem data center, but also then be able to plug into their API partners who are running in Amazon and Google all at the same time. And so having that flexibility of a system that frankly can plug into everywhere is super important. And I think the, the thing that, that stems from that is, frankly, the acceptance that you will have replicas of data. Trying to pull all of that data into a single canonical system is different than saying, we are going to synchronize with the, these sources of truth. And we're going to find really fast and efficient systems that can monitor the upstream data sources, synchronize their data in a way that we can guarantee and ensure that we have the right data in a unified system, but not actually have to require these what tend to be more traditional enterprise companies to also then have to move their entire system over. So finding that balance between how you integrate into all the various systems and then how you have a really intelligent system that can properly synchronize that data and make sure that whatever your new centralized technology is, is properly in sync with those sources of truth is super critical.
0: Today's show is brought to you by Heroku, which has been my most frequently used cloud provider since I started as a software engineer. Heroku allows me to build and deploy my apps quickly, without friction. Heroku's focus has always been on the developer experience, and working with data on the platform brings that same great experience. Heroku knows that you need fast access to data and insights so you can bring the most compelling and relevant apps to market. Heroku's fully managed Postgres, Redis, and Kafka data services help you get started faster and be more productive, whether you're working with Postgres or Apache Kafka or Redis. And that means you can focus on building data-driven apps, not data infrastructure. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com heroku data to learn about Heroku's managed data services. We build our own site, softwaredaily.com, on Heroku. And as we scale, we will eventually need access to data services. I'm looking forward to taking advantage of Heroku's managed data services because I'm confident that they will be as easy to use as Heroku's core deployment and application management systems. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash herokudata to find out more. And thanks to Heroku for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. As a business, how do you avoid becoming a services company in that problem? Because when I talk to companies that are building data platform solutions, what's really hard is that there is such a multiplicity of different systems that have to be plugged into to the quote-unquote data platform. And there's always more features that people want. There's always more plugins that people want. And it really raises the question, is this like data platform thing actually feasible? Because like, if you go and talk to Uber, for example, Uber's data platform is actually like 50 different technologies that are strung together with duct tape and chicken wire. And the idea of, you know, like it would be great if we could just like sketch a rectangular box around like Uber's complicated systems and say, here's your solution. Like we've done it. We've packaged it up. It's a one click thing. Here it is. That seems impossible. It seems really, really hard. So how do you avoid becoming a company where you go from customer to customer and just kind of have to provide a bespoke system?
1: Yeah, so it's a really, really good question. And the short answer is, one, it's hard. It takes a lot of conviction and fortitude. And honestly, frankly, just a lot of compassion for your users and your customers to find that balance. We certainly see this a lot. And I think, you know, IDC even released their report where, consulting services and, and custom development around in the, the data ecosystems of $20 billion a year industry and it's growing. And okay, so maybe you could maybe you, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not something to avoid. Yeah well it's I think it's part of it's also being like super true to you know what you are as a company, which mm. you know for Ascend, we're a technology platform company. And so you know how we've solved this is a fewfold. You know, one obviously we work super closely with a lot of our customers so if they have you know deep product needs we really work hard and prioritize those. And any enterprise company should, of course, do that. I, I think the, you know, the other thing we also do is we partner with a bunch of other services companies so that they can build their businesses mm. with the Ascend platform. And I think that's a really healthy balance because you have to know what your strengths are and, and you gotta find the folks around the ecosystem whose strengths are not your strengths so you collectively can build something really cool together. And I think I'd say the third piece, which is the really interesting one from a technology perspective, is to be able to take a bit of a step back and really think hard around the architecture. You know, one of the actual core values that we have internally inside of Ascend is this notion of build for 10x, plan for 100x, right? You should always kind of know where that next horizon is just to make sure that, for example, you're not painting yourself into a corner, whether it's from a business perspective or a technology perspective. And so we spend a lot of time really thinking through and architecting what are the, the variety of use cases we have so we spend a lot of time with our users actually working through the, hey, you want to integrate into X or Y or Z, or you want to accomplish A, B, or C. And we go and survey a ton of folks. And then we try and actually boil that down to what are the like refactorable like architectural components that we can provide that may not give you exactly A, B, or C, or X, Y, or Z. But if we give you you know this thing and that thing combined, you can accomplish this. But we can also meet the needs of a plethora of other use cases. And so... For example, when we think about like how we integrate into a variety of different systems, we've taken the approach where we have a ton of native integrations and a ton of different connectors, but we also designed an entire framework that said, look, if you can boil down whatever you want to connect into, into just a handful of concepts, a handful of, of snippets of Python or, or whichever language you want to write, we can similarly then fit it into that same architecture. And so... We spend a lot of time thinking through, what are these fundamental concepts? And then we find the, what are the you know, 90 95% of use cases uh, that we should go and really automate and make incredibly easy to go do, but then for the other 5 or 10%, let's make sure that it's still possible. And so we give the, the frameworks on top that people can then really, as for all of us as software engineers, can still go accomplish those things too. And so you, gotta, you just kind of find the balance between those two.
0: My guess is that in many situations you go and talk to a customer and they already have some usage of a combination of open source technologies and closed source technologies let's say they've got you know Amazon RDS somewhere they've got you know maybe Snowflake somewhere or they've got Apache Spark somewhere can you help me understand the canonical architecture or a typical architecture of data systems that when you start talking to a customer and that conversation proceeds eventually to a sale, what are the systems that they have in place and what problem are you solving for them?
1: Yeah, so we see oftentimes it sort of segments into a couple of different configurations. And a lot of it goes back to your question of, are they a larger customer who has a lot of traditional systems, for example, came from the on-prem world, or are they more of a digital native? In the digital native uh, world, we tend to see a lot of customers where they come in and they've already invested in collecting a ton of data. They have it coming in through Kafka or other technologies and they're collecting it. Some of the data is streaming through and being processed. A lot of the data is being collected inside of a data lake. They're putting into a blob store like Amazon S3 or Google Cloud Storage or Azure Blob Store. And what we find then is most companies are, they're processing a bunch of this data. They're running a ton of Spark jobs or maybe Hadoop jobs on top of that. And what they're doing to orchestrate all of that is they're using technologies, usually nowadays it's Airflow, we see as really the dominant orchestration tool. And they're orchestrating a ton of these jobs to then move the data into usually Snowflake or Redshift or Elasticsearch, and then they're feeding their their downstream systems from that. Where we really come in and and help our customers is by simplifying a lot of the code around that orchestration tool and system itself. We come in with the Ascend platform, which is an alternative for orchestration. We think of a... Alternative to Airflow. Yes, exactly. And if you think of Airflow as a beautiful and incredibly powerful framework and technology, we come in with much more of a holistic SaaS approach. And we allow our customers to shift that paradigm from an imperative-based system to a declarative-based system. And so we end up really helping folks cut out huge chunks of code that are just orchestration code. It's scaffolding, it's parameterization, it's things like all the code you had to write for lineage tracking and state management and data persistence, an intelligent declarative system that, for example, with us has a backbone of a control plane that maintains all the state, maintains all the lineage, knows how to actually persist data at various stages. We come in and can take that same logic that they're applying to the data, but greatly simplify the system. The equivalent would be, for example, our world as software engineers before and after use of Kubernetes, for example, where we have really advanced declarative container orchestration. We get the same thing with data pipelines. So Ascend really comes in and just introduces this layer that sits on top of Spark and on top of Blob Store. That if we think about how the technologies work today, you know, a lot of the investments have been in how do I store more data and how do I process more data. But the Ascend approach is how do we actually make those underlying systems more efficient by being able to write more pipelines that are a lower maintenance burden? And our intelligence layer just simply sends smarter things to those systems to begin with. And so that's really where we start to come in, is most folks who have worked with Airflow or other orchestration tools, we oftentimes even find folks who are cronning a bunch of scripts and doing a lot of this manually. It's the, the number one pain point they feel is, these systems are, are brittle, and I'm constantly having to, to triage and troubleshoot. You know, the, the, I think the number one question that we ask folks, which is, how confident are you that your system's actually generating the right data? Like, if you looked at your warehouse, your database, your data lake, everything that sits downstream for your, your pipeline, how confident are you that it actually has the right data and that your system did the right work and you didn't have to triage it, you didn't have to troubleshoot it, and that you actually know that the data that ends up there is correct? And the reality is most people can't actually guarantee that because the system itself, they knew they ran some code on some set of data at some point in time, but they're writing all of these safeguards into their system to try and ensure that it's actually accurate and that it's actually efficient. And so that's really been, our focus has been, uh, how do we help you architect that pipeline, but can trust a smarter system that can maintain full state and guarantee that your pipelines are running as they should be.
0: Okay, so if we zoom in on airflow many of these companies are as you said building systems with airflow that allow them to have a series of data processing jobs that together compose a data pipeline the before is some oltp systems or you know, just various data data lakes data platforms databases and the output is some aggregation or roll up or series of data transformations that have taken place so if we zoom in on airflow the first thing you you pointed out is that as i understand airflow is a imperative well you're you're usually writing airflow jobs in what python like mm-hmm. so you're writing impar- imperative programming using python and you're suggesting that if you move to a declarative configuration based approach to writing your Airflow jobs that will be superior, or at least superior for some subset of users. And in addition, it sounds like the fact that you are a SaaS solution means that you can do things like very easily wire together some storage such that these jobs can have, when they're doing their incremental processing, when they're doing their different stages along the data pipeline, they can save the intermediate data representations, right? As the data is, is moving through the pipeline, right?
1: Exactly. When we introduce a notion of a declarative system, we're really defining our pipelines and you push down into that control plane, really the responsibility of executing, right? So it's sort of the separate separation of logic definition and execution. You can then do really, really advanced things that we weren't able to do before in imperative systems because frankly, it just takes too much time and too much code that we have to repeat over and over and over again. And so, you know, really at the core of Ascend's control plane, and the really exciting part about what it enables is, you know, imagine if you never had to run the same block of code on the, the same piece of data more than once. And we have a really advanced, what's basically a recursive SHA algorithm on both the code that's operating on the data as well as all the way up to the data itself. It ensures that it doesn't matter if you copy all the code for a data pipeline, we won't rerun any of the work. It doesn't matter if you're moving from prod to staging to dev and back up to staging to prod. The system itself has a deep understanding of what is the, the logic that was applied to the data. You get a whole world of efficiencies. You get to do things like really proactive persistence, which from you know the other worlds that we've all been engineers in and think of it as like really smart caching, right? But we get to do things like, Never reprocess data, whereas in most data pipelines today, in most data systems, think of how many times you run that same snippet of code on a same block of data or same file or same record because we're reprocessing, right? We're repulling that data out of the lake. We didn't know how to safely persist it and cache it, so we're reprocessing it. All of a sudden, in a declarative system that can really actually just keep tabs on every piece of data how it was generated, what code ran on it, why it was generated, and then most importantly, even where it went. And We can do all these really cool things on top of it. We can make sure that we never reprocess data. We can deduplicate everything that flows through our system. We can track lineage so that if we have to go chase down automatically, of course, a piece of data because it was updated or it was retracted, a system that is declarative in nature can actually do all of that in a fully automated fashion. Whereas, in an imperative-based model, as an engineer, like, the simplest example is like, what do you do when you updated a file inside of your data lake and you had to retract some data? In an imperative-based system, you actually don't have state in the same way. So you don't know where all of that data went. You have to just go rerun and reprocess huge volumes of data and hope that you actually caught all of the sort of trail of that data mm-hmm. and got, your, you know, got the database updated appropriately and so on. And so I think that's really the important part as we evolve out of these imperative-based systems where the entire notion of state management and tracking of like historical calculations was pushed on the developer. In a declarative model, you can actually then push that burden back down to the system itself, the control plane, and let the developer, frankly, be far less of a plumber and far more of an architect.
0: The configuration-based approach, is that something you can open source?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. We try and align with a lot of the standard methodologies and and definitions, like how we actually define all of our pipelines. The definitions are open and can and frankly should align with any of the rest of the, the open source community. And this is one of the things that we actually found was really interesting as we started to work on Ascend, is the definitions of the pipelines generally tend to not be that complex. Like you're defining data sources, which is... Here's the location of my data. Here's the schema I expect. And that usually is roughly sufficient. And you have some you know, conditions around like what your error handling is and, and so on. When we start to write transforms on data, frankly, like you're just writing snippets of code. If I'm writing SQL, I don't even have to specify output schemas because it's all inferred. If I'm writing Python or PySpark even, we can actually infer a lot of the output schemas as well. And so what you start to actually find is The entire definition of pipelines, when we remove the orchestration tool or the orchestration logic, and we actually separate just the data logic from the data execution, the orchestration, the entire notion of how you define a pipeline becomes incredibly clean and efficient and elegant because it really is just simple transformations on data and logic itself. It becomes as easy as something you'd be writing on your local desktop or be querying inside of a database. And so, you know, going back to your point, I do think it would be phenomenal if the industry, and Ascend as part of that too, really started to standardize and open source. This is how we define data pipelines, and it really does help for us as we started to invest in what we call our declarative pipeline workflows, is this really simple combination of YAML, Python, and SQL to just define here's a data pipeline that is decoupled from its application to the data itself. And and I think that's what becomes super powerful and elegant is it really is simple and easy to understand these pipelines as you clearly define those boundaries.
0: Apache Cassandra is an open-source distributed database that was first created to meet the scalability and availability needs of Facebook, Amazon, and Google. In previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily, we have covered Cassandra's architecture and its benefits. And we're happy to have DataStax, the largest contributor to the Cassandra project since day 1, as a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. DataStax provides DataStax Enterprise, a powerful distribution of Cassandra, created by the team that has contributed the most to Cassandra. Datastacks Enterprise enables teams to develop faster, scale further, achieve operational simplicity, ensure enterprise security, and run mixed workloads that work with the latest graph, search, and analytics technology, all running across hybrid and multi-cloud infrastructure. More than 400 companies, including Cisco, Capital One, and eBay, run DataStax to modernize their database infrastructure improve scalability and security and deliver on projects such as customer analytics, IoT and e-commerce. To learn more about Apache Cassandra and DataStax Enterprise, go to datastax.com/se-daily. That's datastax with an x, d a t a s t a x at datastax.com/se-daily. Thank you to DataStax for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. It's a great honor to have DataStax as a sponsor. And you can go to datastacks.com/se daily to learn more. So, if you go to a potential customer and they are using Airflow, and you want to convince them to use the Ascend declarative-based platform, where do they start? Is it do they refactor? an old workflow that's in Airflow already and they rewrite it in declarative syntax or do you have like an automated way of generating declarative syntax from their imperative syntax or or do you ask them to do a greenfield application? How do you get them to start using Ascend?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things we, we always do for our customers is we offer a free dev trial just like most SaaS offerings. We try and make it as fast and efficient as possible. So you know, people go to our website, like here at at reInvent, or we send everybody towards that trial. And literally within 60 seconds, they're logged into the platform. We give them a bunch of sample data so they at least can start to familiarize themselves with how to build a pipeline on Ascend. And that really helps them at least start to understand that the uh, ease and, and capabilities and power of a declarative system. Then when we really start to get to the, okay, I understand the concepts, and this seems really neat, Really, you then start to get into this. Do you want to go build a new greenfield pipeline? Do you want to migrate pipelines over? What we find for most teams, to be really frank, is I've yet to find in the 15 years for myself as a data engineer and in the four years for Ascend as a technology provider, I've yet to find a data engineering team that has just idle capacity. Like every data engineering team in the world is basically at half the headcount and team size of what they actually can and should be. If you go talk to the data engineering managers, like nobody's like, oh, I've totally hired my entire team can, right? and I have no open headcount because yeah. we're just great, right? Every data engineering team manager is like, hey, I have headcount for 10 or 100 and I have half of that yeah. and I have no line of sight to actually go hiring more and we have a three-year-long backlog of projects, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the reality is like, look, like most data engineering teams are pretty crushed with their, their workload, and they're trying to actually stay afloat from all their existing pipelines and the technologies that like worked great at smaller scale, and not actually smaller scale from data, but smaller scale of company size and team and people who are tapping into them, and they're trying to figure out how do I rapidly retrofit this thing? like How do I basically just like stop the pain and then figure out how do I migrate and upgrade at the same time? And so to your question, really what we find is While there's a lot of really cool greenfield projects, the biggest impact for a lot of folks oftentimes is, hey, what is the most painful thing that you're dealing with today? What is that pipeline? And let's dive in and actually help you really rapidly migrate over that most painful thing. And what we found is we've sat down with teams and and, well, we don't have a fully automated system yet. We've migrated hundreds of thousands of lines of existing pipelines in a matter of a couple of weeks to the Ascend platform and cut out 90 plus percent of the code that's required. And this is like the really cool part about it is it becomes so fast and efficient when you're actually refactoring and separating your logic definition from your orchestration code in the execution layer that it is remarkably fast to move to that declarative model. And it's what we find with our users and our customers is, frankly, like, it's incredibly freeing to, to actually just carve out all that stuff around the actual logic that you're architecting and you really quickly start to find that like if you go tackle the most painful pipelines that are breaking that are actually creating a lot of pain for your downstream systems you then actually start to free up enough time and enough capacity to go chip away at the other things and then get to your really cool greenfield projects so it may not be as exciting and sort of glory filled to help people alleviate a lot of that pain but gosh it really does make their lives a heck of a lot easier to just upgrade and and automate the most painful pipelines they're working with.
0: So have you been able to get people to move their workflows entirely over from using Airflow to using Ascend?
1: Yeah, we have. And I think it, it depends really on how big the team, how big the company. You know, One of the things that's really important to us is you certainly should be able to move everything over, but it's also really important that you don't have to. Like, we're all software engineers, right? So different teams have different tools for different use cases. And it was really important for us as we designed and introduced Ascend into the market that look like we can and should still be able to run side by side with Airflow and we should be able to automate and orchestrate a bunch of pipelines and still actually feed data in and out of Airflow orchestrated pipelines at the same time. And so you know, we find that certainly for a number of folks, we can move everything over. But it, you don't have to. And I think that's really important because if it's an all or nothing thing for your customers, then we have this notion of one-way and two-way doors. If it's all or nothing, it feels a lot more like a one-way door that you can't walk back through and you may be more encumbered. Whereas for us, like we can hook straight into things that you're doing with Airflow. You can run Airflow pipelines on top of the SM platform, tapping into our internal data stores. And as a result, this gives you as an engineer a ton of flexibility. You just frankly get a a smarter orchestration system for many of your pipelines.
0: How do you price a product like this?
1: Pricing's really interesting, it's a good question. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out a good pricing model. For us, fairness and sort of clear, transparent pricing is super important. And so when we priced, and what we've really settled on is an entirely variable, elastic-based pricing model. Same thing that we get when we're buying EC2 or Google Cloud Storage or any of the other sort of various cloud offerings. We added a a really important component to this, which is not only is it elastic and variable, but the other thing we also added was you're actually paying for use as opposed to capacity. So when we buy most big data products today, it doesn't matter if we're buying a data warehouse or a Spark cluster or, or anything else, usually what you're paying for is not use. You're paying for your capacity. You're reserving, you know, 18 nodes of X, Y, or Z size, and you're paying for that, whether or not they're actually processing anything. The pricing model that we introduced was much more of a lambda style or a serverless style pricing model, which is you get billed for the seconds that those you know, cores and memory are actually being used. And frankly, you know, on the Ascend side, if you know we're popping a bunch of work up on a 16-core box but you're only using two cores of that, we're only going to charge you for the two cores or the seconds that you're actually using it, even if there's a whole lot of inefficiency and waste around the side. Because, you know, frankly, in the appropriate model, we feel that optimizing that should be our burden. And for you as a developer, you should just be focused on when are your job's running and how much data are they processing. it really frees you up from not having to worry about what is the size of my cluster? What are the like, instances it's running on? Do I have the right CPU to memory ratio? And instead, you just get to focus on the data itself. And just, frankly, for us, it, it feels better for engineers.
0: So we're in this time where the major cloud providers, well, specifically AWS, is simultaneously beloved and also, in some cases, kind of resented, basically because of how good and unified it is. So. You have the all in on AWS people, but you also have the mostly in on AWS people. It's like we're 80% in on AWS, and then we have a collection of other providers that we're willing to use. We use Snowflake, we use Databricks, we use Data Stacks, we use maybe MongoDB but you know, 80% of our infrastructure spend goes to AWS and it's gonna take a lot of work to convince us that we should be using your point solution that is not AWS because of a couple of reasons. One, we don't trust infrastructure that's not as good as AWS and it's gonna take a ton of work for you to convince us you're as reliable as AWS. And two, whatever you're doing, if it's good enough, AWS is gonna build it next year. Why would we buy in today? We've got enough stuff to work on. We'll just wait a year and we'll get an AWS fully integrated solution. Why on earth should we go with you, point solution provider? So how do you build enough market share in that environment?
1: Yeah, so it's a really good question. I think you hit on a lot of the right points. You know, the, the approach we've taken is a few fold. You know, the, the first thing is, We've worked really hard to be really tightly integrated inside of AWS. We're integrated inside of the marketplace, so you can just buy us like any other Amazon service, which we find a lot of folks enjoy just because it's easier to procure. It's actually even tucked under a lot of the the standard cloud provider enterprise agreements. And frankly, for really big customers, we even have an enterprise deployment where we'll deploy inside of their own infrastructure. So their InfoSec and Ops teams actually have access to all the underlying engine and it's totally isolated and, and so on, which is great. I think when we think about the, you know, why won't Amazon or frankly, the other cloud providers too, Azure or Google, just go introduce what you have over time. I think it's, the answer is really a few fold. Simply put, at least for us, as you know, we're one of many point solution providers, but for us, this technology is hard. Like running highly autonomous big data systems and this is not new. Amazon has had the opportunity to create a lot of this stuff for many, many years, and as has Google, as has Azure. I mean, heck, I wrote my first MapReduce job in Sawzall at Google in 2004 as an engineer there. Like, we've all known that this is a thing for 15 years, at least for me personally. Yet, people still haven't actually solved the problem. And I think because, frankly, it's really hard to solve. You I know, mean, we spent four years at Ascend creating this engine. And we knew that it was going to be a very, very hard problem because what we're basically doing is, is we're creating a pipeline engine itself. It is the push equivalent of how a database engine and a query planner and a query optimizer works. This is hard technology. It's not grabbing something that is off, off the shelf, open source and sassifying it. This is like a very fundamentally new and hard technology to build. So it may take them more than a year, maybe two, but you know ultimately over time, we do believe that the world will move from imperative to declarative. We know all three cloud vendors have their imperative-based orchestration tools. So let's assume that they all do deeply understand that they should be building declarative orchestration. They should be moving to, into far more advanced systems. Then we really get into the world of why would you use that point solution versus one of the cloud-specific vendors. You know, Our approach has been actually very similar to what even Google does with Anthos and Kubernetes, which is, you really do need to be able to run an entire multi-cloud strategy. One of the huge benefits of using somebody like Ascend is we can run on all three clouds, we can connect into any of the various systems, and the beauty of this is, and we've had customers who have literally gone from one cloud to the other, and migrating over is literally, like, outside of the data gravity is, if I actually copy the definition of a pipeline from one cloud to another, our system itself will uh, start to execute and self-heal. It will find the data, it will move it over or reprocess it if appropriate, and you get this level of cloud portability that we haven't really seen before, especially for data and pipelines. And so similar to why we you know, we observe that there's such excitement around Kubernetes and, and the freedom that that gives you across cloud providers, you know, we think that there's the same thing around data pipelines when using, frankly, a neutral third party that is not just cloud agnostic, but really optimized to run across all three at the same time.
0: What's the biggest strategic challenge that you have in terms of go-to-market strategy today?
1: I think the biggest strategic challenge today is the most of the industry today is really well-versed in imperative systems. And nobody to date before Ascend had introduced declarative orchestration. And so frankly, it's... A lot of for us, really academic and philosophical conversations with people, introducing this notion of what declarative is. Right? I mean, think about the how we used to process data before we had SQL. Right? The, the introduction of SQL as a declarative language for processing data introduced a, a fundamentally different paradigm. And you know, today engineers are really experienced. We know that the benefits of declarative engineering. Like we we use Terraform for infrastructure. We use React on the front end. We use Kubernetes for container orchestration. But we have so many conversations with people who just haven't actually thought about that for pipelines. Like the, the industry has just been, to be really frank, like, has just been beaten down to accept how painful these imperative-based systems are. And so we love the opportunity, and this is why we offer tons of free trials and just want people to get their hands on the product. Because that's really what starts to open up your mind around how much better the world can be when you move away from imperative based systems and to declarative. And it's just that education and socialization across the industry is, is really the biggest go-to-market, both challenge and opportunity.
0: Hmm. I've talked to a lot of people building data products in the last couple of years. And it's it's really interesting market right now, I think, you know, for many of the reasons that we've discussed. Do you have any advice for people who are building data products today, whether it's like, you know, whether we're talking about databases, data warehousing tools, data middleware, all of these things are really hard to build because it's such key infrastructure. It's core infrastructure. And buying from startup is pretty concerning because if there's a bug and it messes with your data integrity, then, you know, you're just, it can be catastrophic. So there's that challenge out of the gate. And then there's all the typical challenges of a startup, but what advice would you give to data startups, the hard-earned advice over the last four, four and a half years?
1: You know, for advice for data startups in particular is, you know, I, I think we've, the industry for the longest time has, I think, been solving incremental problems, We've been trying to store a little bit more data or process a little bit more data. And to be really frank, like I think as a result, there's still huge inefficiencies for our lives as data engineers. And I think the, and of course, I'm biased at Ascend as we followed and ascribed to this, which is go solve the big, hard problems. You know, why I created Ascend was... You know, As I mentioned, I, I was writing data pipelines and inside of Google 15 years ago. I, the last company I founded, we processed insane amounts of data at incredibly high volumes and velocity. And when I looked at the thing that actually made our lives hardest as data engineers it wasn't like, do I have a bigger, better, faster storage or processing system? It was, I feel like every single day I'm reinventing the wheel and just writing the same kinds of code and heuristics every single day. And You know, in the big data ecosystem and just data engineering in general, like we have all of this excitement around we're applying data and AI and machine learning to solve all the rest of the world's problems. But we should really actually turn that intelligence back onto our own jobs and figure out how we actually solve our challenges and pain points as data engineers and make our lives easier as well.
0: Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native... They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of software engineering daily both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects so if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects go to softwareengineeringdaily.com g2i